to the art and spirit. This is Brad Berkman, the host of this podcast. As you probably recall from the first podcast, or hopefully you'll recall for those who've listened, this is obviously a Green Spoon Modern podcast, and I am an attorney at the Alcohol Beverage Law Group. And I am here today with uh, my colleague and my very good friend, Mr. Michael Martinez. Mike, why don't you say hello to, the, uh, to our listeners? Hi, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Mike, thanks for being here. And I'm glad uh, to have you as our first guest. Well, you know, before we jump in, I'd like to sort of just introduce our group a little bit to the listeners, just so they have some ideas as to what we do. So we are the Hospitality, Alcohol, and Leisure Industry Group. And our practice is very much devoted to industry members within that group. And those industry members uh, include what we call upper tier, again, that would be uh, manufacturers and distributors and brand owners of all sorts, as well as middle tier distributors and retailers of all sorts who sell alcoholic beverages and um, other aspects of sort of the restaurant business as well. And there are so many interesting practice areas in each one of those tiers that we'll get into over time. But Today we have, again, as I said, Mike Martinez, my guest, and Mike has an extraordinary amount of experience um, in this industry. Mike, in fact, was a regulator attorney with the Division of Alcoholic Beverages and Tobacco here in Florida for a very, very long time. He can tell us about that a little bit later. But I'm going to make an attempt at unnerding our conversation just a bit. And I'm going to start off by asking Mike, what pulled you into the world of alcoholic beverages specifically as a practice area in the law? And then if you tell us what you like about it. I mean, I know you find it fun. We're on the phone all the time, screaming, yelling, shouting, laughing on virtually every topic uh, as it relates to alcoholic beverage regulation and law. But, you know, I never asked you that pointed question. So so what drew you into the practice area? And tell me why, please, um, do you enjoy it so much? Thanks, Brad. I, uh, I was doing criminal law and uh, I had progressed to the point where I was uh, being assigned. I worked for the state. I was being assigned felony cases. The longer you practice, the more serious they get. I had gotten uh, up into felony cases, and robberies and things like that. It was a jury trials every two weeks scheduled. And, you know, uh, at times, if you if you lost, people were sort of, you know, dragged off to jail, so to speak. And I, I thought that maybe there was a, a little bit less stressful way to, to live. And so I had applied to the Department of Business and Professional Regulation. I interviewed and the two options that I had and I had to pick was construction, construction industry licensing board prosecution, or alcohol, beverages, tobacco. So a lot of the construction cases are kind of cookie cutter. And I just thought that the, the variety of cases and assignments with alcohol, beverages, and tobacco was a lot more fun, more up my alley, had, had criminal aspects also. And it just, you know, the, I felt like I fit within that group of people. I, I was friends with the uh, supervisor there. So I, I chose that direction and I've never looked back. 
So the cho- the choice was pretty easy for you, as it was for me. Actually, my my experience, as as you're well aware, is, is different than yours. In that um, I come from the industry itself. Uh, prior to getting into this practice area, I was involved in the, what we call the supplier side of this business, working specifically for uh, brand owning companies. So uh, it's an interesting mix that Mike and I bring to this particular practice area. Um, we have a deep understanding together, I and mean, I should say we often work together on many different topics and for many different clients. And uh, Mike brings his years of experience as, again, as a regulator, and I bring my years of experience as an industry member. And combined, I like to think we're a, a, a pretty dangerous team, in fact, and it's actually a very effective team. Another thing really from from my way of thinking that's so interesting about this, and you'll probably agree with me, Mike, and, is that there are so many interesting areas that we have to focus on. There are federal issues, there are state issues that we have to look at. For many of our retailer clients, there are municipal matters, zoning regulations, um, special use permits, variances, special exceptions. There's so many aspects of this practice area that, you know, depending upon the day and depending upon the client, we have to bring in, you know, numerous and different skill sets and different knowledge bases and sort of jump in between those things and apply them as needed. Do you find that to be true, Mike? Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, the, the, the breadth of what we have, which is this practice group, particularly the firm, was super intriguing to me because it wasn't going to be dealing with just one tier, you know, with the retail, the distributor, the manufacturing, so many different issues. It was exciting for, for that aspect, but also the aspect of helping clients to structure on the front end their, their business, their goals, and trying to fit that within the regulatory framework in a compliant manner is, is a challenge and, and frankly, just a lot of fun. And the people you meet and their passion for their, you know, for their different, and the concepts are so amazingly different, you know, from nightclubs to somebody who wants to create a new product to a restaurant um, and and my time at the department working with you know alcohol beverages tobacco and hotels and restaurants those factors and the friendships I have that that we you know continue to leverage uh, to assist clients is something that I enjoy a great deal and your industry perspective is is extremely valuable in my opinion it really it helps me to get a get a good feeling for uh, the mechanics of the industry itself. Right. So it's 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 many of our heated conversations. And I say heated. I mean passionate conversations. Uh, much like the name of our podcast, they're they're ardent conversations. Really involve trying to take our clients' operational goals, uh, their business objectives specifically, and. Uh, Fit them into, as Mike said, the regulatory framework that all uh, alcohol beverage uh, entities, industry members, if you will, and that that is a term of art, but we can discuss that a bit later. Um, I have to comply with. So, you know, one of one of the focus areas that Mike and I spend a lot of time on is uh, again what we call upper tier industry members or brand owners. And uh, the relationship between brand owners and retailers in particular. On our first podcast, I briefly int- introduced the topic of uh, Tied House Evil. And um, I think I commented specifically on the, uh, the last word of that, evil. About, in my mind, I find it so interesting that such a strange term 
is still found in the statutes of, uh, uh, in Florida and uh, virtually in every state, in fact, simply the term evil. But that said, uh, this concept of tied house regulates many aspects, or virtually all aspects, really, of branding, brand promotion, brand owners, and their relationship with retailers. And unique to our practice is that when we have a new brand owner come on board with us as a client, we have to offer advice and look at a number of areas, one federal law and two state law. Specifically, we can limit this conversation to Florida. Uh, that's where we practice and that's where our expertise lie. Florida Tide House and federal Tide House issues are pretty distinct. Um, the definitions of the two are, are somewhat different, but we have to be cognizant of both of these bodies of law when analyzing our clients' operational needs. So what might be an operational need when looking at Tide House? It could be promotional programs. It might even be advertising. It might even be, uh, you know, dollars spent against the brand in the marketplace. You know, is this particular activity that a brand owner presents us with, is it permissible according to federal Tide House? Is it permissible according to state Tide House regulations? And and Mike and I spend an awful lot of time sort of dealing with those two issues. Mike, why don't you give us a couple of sentence definition, if you could, about Florida Tide House specifically. 561.42 is the Florida statute that deals exclusively with, well, I shouldn't say exclusively, but but the principal statute that deals with Florida Tide House. And I'll let Mike jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, Mike. thank you, Brad. I, I'm sure that we covered, you know, what Tide House was in the, in the prior broadcast, but uh, tied house refers to a tie or connection from an industry member, as Brad mentioned before, upper tier industry member, which would be a manufacturer or a distributor of alcohol and with a vendor or retailer is another term term used commonly. So the, the idea should be there can be no uh, tying of the house. There could be no control from the upper two tiers to the retail tier or the lowest tier. So three tier, they're stacked on top of each other. Manufacturer at the top, distributor in the middle, retailer in the bottom. In Florida, it's it's very interesting. I was involved in the implementation of the uh, rules, which which basically put into effect the statutory scheme. So most states have a very similar overall tight house prohibition on accepting anything that is in, unlawful. Or, or anything that is a, a gift to a retailer from the upper tiers, unless there's an exception. Right. Florida's rules were drafted in a way, which is a little bit, uh, which isn't as common, is it was drafted so that you cannot get anything unless there's an exception within the statute or the rule. And, you know, there are, there are myriads of exceptions. But items, um, typically, you know, coasters, uh, T-shirts, items like that. There, there are items such as that. There are some advertising areas. So the trick is to look at the regulatory exceptions and identify what areas can be, can be utilized to further the business interests of the client. So if it's not authorized, it's prohibited. And uh, that makes for some interesting challenges. And the reason that we... At the time, the state chose that methodology of, of analysis of tide houses. There are so many people out there pushing the boundaries and creating new concepts to try to aid the retailer and get their 
product, you know, over another product that trying to say what was permissible was just like putting a genie in a bottle. There was no way to do it. So we went the other way and just said, okay, here are the exceptions. If you can't find an exception and get it in this exception, that it would, that it is not permissible. That's how Florida has implemented when you combine the statute and the administrative rules. Right. And, um, you know, bringing my industry background and, and looking at the entire house concept, it's in this state in particular, it is very restrictive. And you made a great point, uh, you know, when you said that uh, unless there was a stated exception in the law, the uh, activity is impermissible, can't be done. Um, so it's interesting in that many of these exceptions are listed in uh, the Florida Administrative Code. And we turn to the, the code often to analyze those exceptions against clients' programs uh, and promotions and other areas. And we try and creatively work to help clients achieve those goals. So, you know, it's 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 really a very interesting part of <clears throat> I think our day-to-day roles. But then again, also, we have to look at federal tie-ups. So that's another issue, particularly when it comes to brand owners uh, and, again, in their relation to retail. So the central concept of federal tie house really focuses on the word uh, exclusivity. Uh, and I'll turn to Mike, too, and let Mike tell us a little bit about, just very briefly, Mike, what does that, what does that mean, exclusivity? So, it, it, yeah, I would agree. I, I would agree. The two, the two primary issues are exclusivity and inducement, you know, in my view. And so the, the idea is that, uh, again, with the concept of tying it to a house, they don't want to have ex- control of a manufacturer or distributor such that a retailer is only selling a particular type of product or that it's controlled. And, or, and you ha- to buy one product, you have to buy another and inducement is essentially some sort of gift which would in which would encourage a person to sell less of a competitor's brand and federally they have that sort of extra burden and in some states to establish that that it is in fact affected their buying patterns as opposed to Florida where there doesn't have to be a showing of a diminishment of, of purchasing or choosing another brand or anything of that nature. I agree with you 100% about buying patterns and looking into the you know TTB investigators coming in and a- analyzing buying patterns. But what needs to be shown in, in terms of uh, favoring one brand over another? I mean, what, what kind of quantities establish one brand uh, being sort of the exclusive brand over another? It's fairly de minimis, wouldn't you agree? A TTB could potentially make a case, um, even even on the smallest numbers. Often, what happens is there is a you know an industry member complaint, and they look into into a a situation, and then they look for buying patterns, and they look for increases of products sold from the per, from the industry member who get, who is giving some sort of gift, and a decrease in other purchases. And honestly, just as a as a practical business matter it's almost inevitable that there will be buying pattern changes, which, which are enough for them to move forward. But obviously a smoking gun, you know, if, they, if there was some kind of blatant um, large cash gift and then they start carrying one product and completely drop a competitor's, that's the kind of thing that is in their view, very enticing in regards to making cases. But they, to your point, Brad, yes, it doesn't have to be a wholesale change. But if they were never purchased before and there's some kind of program started that is 
potentially pushing the limits or over the line. And then the buying patterns change dramatically. That's the sort of gotcha evidence that the feds are tend to look at. Sure. And if I were a brand owner, distributor uh, in the marketplace, who do I have to be watching out for? Uh, do I need to watch out for regulators? How am I going to stumble? How am I going to get? How am I going to get in trouble? What do I need to be cognizant of? I think um, you know, uh, discounting my uh, our our interests. Obviously, you do need someone to guide you, someone who has an idea. Because no, no, even um, if, who, who's going to be the first one to rat you out is what I'm asking. Oh, oh, okay. It's going to be a competitor or a disgruntled employee of yours. Those are right. the two primary individuals or, or entities that are going to make the complaint. I mean, and often it's kind of confounding because, uh, for instance, many cases over the years that I worked with the state uh, and even on this side, one distributor will lose out, you know, taps or some other market share with a company based on a program. They will immediately make a complaint and they are they will have other issues which are improper and they don't for some reason they get so worked up at the moment they file a complaint and it opens a pandora's box the feds when they do come in i mean they're very both the state and the federal government are are stressed on resources so they tend to follow the complaint model not always but traditionally and that leads them much more efficiently to cases and then they make examples of companies based off that so right. the idea is to structure things correctly on the front end and compliantly not to avoid that because the process Absolutely. itself is very arduous and uh unpleasant costly. and costly absolutely so it's costly on a number of fronts obviously it uh... Uh, the fines imposed can be very, very high. The, the legal expenses of uh, defending against an investigation can be very high. So the best measure really for any, I think, upper tier industry member would be to plan prior uh, to put the, pro, you know, have programs reviewed, have them looked at, analyzed, thought out, carefully analyzed uh, against federal and state law to avoid a costly era. It's truly problematic. I've seen uh, quite a bit of horror stories out there in terms of uh, real dollars, uh, in terms of fines, as well as having to close one's doors for a period of time um, to um, even loss of licensure. And it's, it's, it's a very costly process. So the best approach really is to plan. And, you know, Another thing we were speaking about, Mike, and just to, just to touch on and just to close this out, and maybe we can talk about this some other time going forward, is that there are a whole bunch of disruptors in coming into the industry now, uh, pushing the envelope, if you will, or the framework of Tide House outward, right? And the relationship between retailers and upper, and upper tier industry members. Mike and I spend a lot of time working with online sellers of alcohol. We uh, and some of the very unique models that have been put in place that are, in fact, beverage law compliant models, but they operate on the, the edges, if you will, of, of Tide House regulation. But they're very interesting, right? And it's always a challenge to try and create business plans for disruptors within our field uh, trying to uh, make money and grow businesses in a, in, a, in, a, in a unique way, you know, within the, if you will, confines of this regulatory framework. But we can talk about that another time, Mike. 
it's just an interesting subject matter. And I know we spend a lot of time talking about that. I I hope that this uh, brief podcast was uh, enjoyable. Mike, I hope you had a good time. Is there I certainly like, did. Is there anything you'd like to add before we, we sign off? Uh, no, I really appreciate having the opportunity to participate today. I think it's a it's a fascinating area. You know, I think a little bit of due diligence on the front end. A lot of times it's not that anyone is trying to do something wrong or even the model itself might not be non-compliant. But terms of art, you know, if you use the wrong phrase, what I try to do is put my regulator hat on and look at it from their perspective. And would this raise a concern unnecessarily combined with your with your um, industry uh, understanding, the two of us together? I think that's what we really offer our clients that sets us apart. And, you know, I look forward to to continuing to work with you on those issues as well as uh, participating in podcasts. Yeah. Well, as do I, I was going to sum up in a similar fashion. I was going to say when I put my industry hat on and you wear your regulator hat, that's when we have some of our most ardent conversations. Anyway, thank you for joining us today on The Ardent Spirit. We hope you enjoyed what we had to say. And until next time, Sanche. 